and welcome to Coronavirus, The Whole Story, UCL's award-winning podcast all about coronavirus, told from the perspective of UCL's staff and students. My name is Vivian Parry. I'm a writer, broadcaster and UCL alumna and your guide to the groundbreaking coronavirus research happening here at UCL. In this episode, we're going to be looking at how the pandemic has affected UCL's extensive and important outreach programme. UCL does an enormous amount of work in schools and local communities to help make its research accessible and to help reduce inequalities in our education system. So this week, I'm joined by guests from the Department of Engineering and the IOE who are all involved in outreach in different ways. I want to know what ways has outreach been hindered and why is it more necessary than ever in these times of pandemic? My first guest is Louise Archer, who holds the Carl Mannheim Chair of Sociology of Education in the IOE. Louise researches educational inequality and how it intersects with different identities along lines of gender, ethnicity and social class. Louise has been conducting a longitudinal study during lockdown to understand its effects on a cohort of young people and has been developing resources to help teachers tackle the education gap which has been both highlighted and widened by COVID. My second guest this week is Dr. Elpida Macri-Gianni. Elpida is the UCL Engineering Education Developer and Coordinator. She's the person tasked with delivering UCL Engineering's 50-50 strategy that aims to increase the representation of girls and minority ethnic students through UCL's outreach programmes. Elpida has worked on education programmes for organisations in the private, public and voluntary sectors, including the Department of Education, Google and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And last but not least, and a very particular welcome to Tiwa Jaola, a UCL engineering graduate. Not only has Tiwa completed an MSc in Civil, Geomatic and Environmental Engineering during lockdown, hooray, but she's also spent the pandemic supporting secondary school students as a tutor in UCL engineering tutoring programmes. Let's start with Louise. During lockdown, you've been working on the ESRC-funded Aspires project. Tell us a bit more about that and how it's been affected by coronavirus. So the ESRC-funded Aspires project is, it's been going for a long time now. We've been tracking the same cohort of young people from age 10, and we've caught up with them this year, and they're currently aged 20, 21. So it's a really unique way that we can follow the lives of these young people. This year, we had expected, uh, we would normally have gone to visit and interview them face-to-face, but Obviously, those uh, plans were scuppered by the lockdown, but it actually gave us this really interesting opportunity to talk actually at length. Um, Young people were very, you know, they were available uh, and they were able to talk to us through um, internet calls and uh, video conferencing and to tell us about their lives. And in particular, this bit that we hadn't foreseen when we put the grant in, but to understand the impact of the lockdown on them at the moment, alongside the other issues we're looking at about what makes them um, continue or not with science, technology, engineering and maths. So that was a a really wonderful opportunity. And yes, (laughs) academics were more exciting than anything else going on in their lives. Uh, Tell me what your findings were. So in terms of the impact of of lockdown, um, unsurprisingly, we found that they they reported far more negative impacts than positive impacts. So the majority of them told us that, as we all know, it impacted them socially, emotionally, 
financially and educationally. But it impacted different people in different ways. So those young people from less affluent backgrounds um, who, who experience um, special educational needs and disabilities, mental health issues, they were disproportionately affected. So, for example, we had young people telling us that it wasn't just the, the, the terrible, you know, the impact socially and emotionally of the lockdown, but actually it stopped them doing really important, vital, paid employment. So for some students, they have no financial safety net from their families. And they're saying, actually, without this normal term time and holiday work, I simply don't have the income to, to, that I need to get by. So the same thing for, for young people um, with, for example, mental health difficulties. Everyone found it troublesome um, or difficult, challenging. But for them, it was even more problematic. So again, this, this idea of differential impacts um, impacting the most vulnerable the most. And we've spoken often in this uh, podcast series about inequalities. From your experience of this work, has the pandemic widened these inequalities still further? Yes, I think it's important to remember that these inequalities were already there before. So, but they have been exacerbated. I think it's welcome that there's now been a shift in public discourse and much more openness and willingness to engage with issues of inequality. We've had the Black Lives Matter movement, climate justice, and so on. So it's been very challenging, but I welcome that uh, foregrounding of inequalities. But I think it's also important how we think about them. So there's a lot of talk in education at the moment about the idea of the education gap and uh, young people falling behind. This is obviously important, but the work we've uh, drawn on from um, people like Gloria Ladson-Billings in the States, from Black Feminist Work, that actually if we think about the education gap as an education debt, it makes us think differently about whose responsibility is. I think we need to make sure there can be a tendency to sort of blame those who are suffering from the gaps or, or debt um, as somehow, you know, they, they're lacking, they're in a deficit way, and it's their fault. But actually, if we reframe it as a debt, it, it shows that it's our duty as a society to support them and, to, and to, to close those inequalities. So for you, in some ways, COVID has been an opportunity because you've got to have these much richer conversations uh, as a result of having more time. Has there been anything that's surprised you or which has informed how you might do research in the future? I think it's probably made all of us think very differently around how we work and how we do research. I think the importance of recognising the time uh, issues, um, how we collaborate together and so on um, at a very basic level. But I think it's also really made us aware that do we have enough resources and tools for educators to actually support them? And what does it mean to do social justice work? So we've became um, really aware that we, we talk to teachers and out-of-school educators about the importance of adopting a social justice or an equity mindset to, to address these issues. But what does that mean? And we became really aware through conversations with our practice partners that it's really vague. So some of the work we've been doing has been to try and make that a bit more concrete. We're just in the process now of launching um, a new conceptual tool. We call it the equity compass because it's just a, a, a conceptual way to help you orientate yourself to thinking about what, what do I need? What does that mean thinking about equity in my research? So it's a, a simple little diagram that has eight points on it, eight things that you can think about when you're, if you're trying to do equitable practice. And they're like prompts and it's it has like a scale so you can think you can see where you're sitting. So 
when you feel thinking about issues of power or how, how participatory is my teaching? How much am I valuing and recognising what the students bring and their own knowledges and interests and what matters to them? Or how much is it really just fulfilling my interests or the interests of science or society? It's a simple tool that we're using with teachers now to school educators to try and help them. And it's got similarities actually with a lot of the kind of health research we we hear about where it's patient centric, you know, where the child is at the centre of an educator's work rather than sometimes, you know, the research pushing the research agenda rather than necessarily the child's agenda. Absolutely. It's the same point. And I think it for us, we work in the context of um, science, technology, engineering and maths. And I think too often people with really good intentions see STEM as as a destination rather than as a vehicle to help get people towards destinations that they want for themselves. So for you know, addressing your own personal health issues, uh, helping solve the climate crisis, there are all these things that STEM can be really important and useful for. And we want to bring that front and centre rather than seeing it as we just need to get more people into STEM for the benefit of STEM. I couldn't agree with that more. Let me move now to Elpida. What kinds of programmes was UCL Engineering already running to help decrease inequality in STEM attainment? So we run over 100 programmes together with others in partnership with uh, organisations and charities, government and also uh, companies. The programmes span from summer schools to tutoring and mentoring programmes to virtual experience programmes now and previously face-to-face work experience and research placement and more. One of the key things for us and for our approach is that we work with the same schools and the same communities over time in a meaningful and in a sustained way. So we take the same young people and we work with them through the months and through the years in different programs and interventions. So what happened when COVID came along? Presumably it all came screeching to a halt. (laughs) So um, February 2020... We're starting to get kind of the first hints that there's going to be a national lockdown, there's going to be school closures. And there was the the question there, what do we do? Do we kind of pause, reflect and do what we've always been doing, which is go back to the local communities we work with and listen to them. Listen to what the most important thing was for them during the, the, the crisis and how we could support them in depth, catering to their needs, and in a sustained and meaningful way again over time. What did that look like? So in uh, March 2020, we decided to, uh, and after talking to, to these communities for a while, so we talked to teachers, we talked to youth workers, we talked to community leads, to really understand the bigger picture of what they were dealing with. Everyone was shocked, exhausted and overwhelmed. <laughs> and no one had the answers of what, we, what needed to be done. But one thing that came across from the communities we work with was that they needed some type of ongoing support to what the schools were trying to offer while pupils were at home. So the online learning that was taking place. So whatever we had to do had to be complementary to what the schools and the uh, youth centres and local communities were offering. And actually, quite often, schools were not offering 
as much as we would have liked them to offer. So it's quite varied. You have uh, a wide range across the sector of schools that were doing daily online uh, classes to schools that had a virtual learning environment where uh, pupils could access the particular content and resources and assignments or tests they needed to prepare. And then you also had schools that sent an email a week with a PowerPoint or PDF uh, that said, you know, these are all the different things that you need to be studying for the week. And you can imagine that this was kind of overwhelming both for the parents and carers, but also for the young people themselves. Yeah, I mean, for the for the parents, I mean, <laughs> en- engineering and maths is is completely out of many, oh, yeah. many parents' comfort zone. And, yeah, a- absolutely. And they can't help at all. And the thing is, it's it's not only that, it is that our students that actually supported the online tutoring program, which is the program that w- that was our answer, if you like, to the pandemic, were trained to deliver these subjects and were guided always by the teachers. So the teachers would let us know about each pupil's situation and about um, and assessing the different areas where the pupils needed support. So what was brilliant about what we were able to offer was that it was a tailored intervention to every young person's individual learning style, ability and pace. And that makes learning really relevant in a time where everything around them, I think, was changing. And in fact, learning is, a, a, a as you suggest, it's, it's a constant, isn't it? It's something yeah. to hang on and to and focus on at a time when nothing else is certain. Absolutely. I want to ask you the same question uh, that I asked Louise. How did it change what you might do in the future? So although COVID-19 and the, the, the entire pandemic has had a devastating effect in so many different areas that Louise and you have mentioned already, Vivian, we felt that there's been a real opportunity here, a real opportunity to rethink our approach to education, to remake education, as we call it. And also with regards to the debt, the um, so the educational gap that's contextualized um, as a debt, which Louise was talking about before, I think we have a collective duty here. We really have a collective duty right now to to step up and to increase our efforts to support those affected the most and those that need it the most. And we can actually see several great examples of uh, this kind of collective effort at a local level and also at a national level. And I can speak a bit more about that if you want. Yes, because I was wondering how confident are you that you're reaching those students who most need you? Because a lot of students who have very engaged teachers get into programmes like this, whereas the ones that actually could fly with some help from UCL perhaps fall under the radar, not through anything that they've done, but just because, you know, their own teachers are are, are not really uh, aware. Yeah, absolutely. So we have been dealing with this issue long before the pandemic. (laughs) I imagine. (laughs) This has always been the communities we've been working with. So we have established ways of working with them and identifying them 
And also, uh, this is why I said to you before that when in February, when we started seeing that we were going towards lockdown and school closures, we knew that the first contacts we would lose would be to the children and young people that we need to be supporting the most. They would be the ones that would fall off the radar immediately. We would not be able to contact them. And that's why we went to, to them first and to their parents first. And I will just say that uh, on a personal level, what we did have to do with a lot of the young people, because a lot of their parents were key workers and were working 48-hour shifts and 72-hour shifts, we did have to say, we're available to you any time of the day, get in touch with us so that we can set up the online program with you for your child. And I can tell you that everyone did get back, but it might have taken more time. It might have taken more effort, but every single parent that we wanted to work with did come back. But absolutely, that is, that, that was our first concern. Another way of getting in touch with these young people is through the community centers, through the youth centers, because they will still, and they did still, uh, go to the community centers for different reasons. So it might be that there were um, free meals there, or there was some type of sport activity that they could do, and, and so forth. Just a final question for you, because I'm, uh, I'm intrigued that you know, access, online access, mm-hmm. is something that depends on you having good broadband, not too many other people in your household using it, and um, a, you know, the, a, a device. And lots of kids have just got phones and a pretty rubbish Wi-Fi. And I know from where I live in, which is not far from UCL, that at six o'clock, I can't get any, can't get any Wi-Fi yeah. at all because all the kids are coming home and all immediately into their uh, games and using up all the uh, broadband. Mm-hmm. But that that is a real pressing issue for people, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think that moving forward uh, and going back also to your previous question about, you know, what, what what does the future look like? I think that moving forward, one of the things that this pandemic is making us do is pushing us to really understand what type of structures we need to put in place with regards to digital uh, poverty and with regards to entire communities and families and young people that are excluded from online learning and from uh, learning during this pandemic, but also beyond this pandemic. We, we solved this in a few different ways. We've had, again, a range of situations. We've had young people that have had both an internet connection and a device. We've had young people that have had a family device that they uh, used. And then we also had issues with internet broadband. So the ways that we we found that uh, worked really well was that what was interesting was that family members did respect the scheduled time that we had the tutoring for the day. The the pupil had access to a laptop and uh, the internet. Now, I should explain that because we were all under lockdown, it was much easier for us to have a session at 11 in the morning or 2 p.m. or when uh, when there was there were not so many people constantly online. 
And the other aspect is that has to do with the devices is that we did two different things. The first one was look at apps and look at tools that crunched up the less less data, as less data as possible. And one of the other things uh, that we also did was uh, look at also getting netbooks and uh, tablets to the young people that needed it the most. Now, I should mention here, um, as I was saying before, that there are several examples of this great collective effort that's currently happening uh, where uh, organizations are coming together and they're trying to support with devices. They're trying to uh, support in different ways. One example of this is Camden and Camden Learning. They've been able to secure devices and connections for around 3,000 pupils uh, that needed the most. And then um, another example for how we came together, all connected online, is also our work with uh, the Olympic Park and East London, where the London Legacy Development Corporation brought um, all the different uh, partners around the Olympic Park to work on a three-week entirely online summer school that uh, had arts and design and engineering and science and fashion and the media and everyone involved. And that gave us also a glimpse of hope, if you like, in a sense that we all came together, we shared expertise, we helped each other. And we're all in great need of hope at the moment. So that's that's terrific to hear all of that. I want to go now to Tiwa. Tiwa, you had a really rotten uh, pandemic <laughs> because, you know, there we were trying to f- uh, finish your uh, MSc and you were also trying to do engagement programmes under lockdown. Uh, and you do engineering tutoring. So <laughs> I don't know which one, which bit of that you want to talk about uh, first, but let's start with what you actually do as an engineering tutor. Yes, it was quite challenging, I must say. It was very strange, but it was, it was to be honest, and I, I've said it to Opida um, many, many times, that doing this has been one of the greatest joys of this pandemic, of these strange times. Um, so as an We engineer, love to hear joy in a pandemic. <laughs> honestly, I, you know, I've been involved with STEM for such a long time and carrying on, especially at a time like this, was nothing short of fulfilling for me. And yeah, so as an engineering tutor, I basically work alongside um, Elpida and a wider team, and we support the students with whatever subject they choose. So maths, physics, chemistry, biology, um, and, you know, any topics that they they need help with. And we go through their curriculum, um, we speak to their teachers, we get access to their online platforms, and we go through their work and try to stick to that work um, and help them to feel confident. You know, I think more than anything, it was a question of, can you help me? Because I don't have my teacher here. And, you know, the work, a lot of the work was to be supportive and just just let them know that, yes, 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 I can. Just tell me what you need help with and we can do it together. And, you know, it had many facets to it um, outside of academic as well, which was also just to motivate them, to inspire them um, and to just be a be a source of comfort, I guess, at a very weird time um, for everyone. <laughs> It sounds like everyone needs a Tiwa in their in their cupboard, <laughs> <laughs> just permanently. Hello, Tiwa. Can you answer this problem about quadratic equations? Basically, um, but uh, how did you 
how did you have to I mean you do that normally yeah what particular things did you have to do to adapt because I'm getting a sense from you that actually almost the emotional support was as important as the teaching element yeah yeah absolutely in terms of adapting so what had happened actually so far was um I work full-time and my my master's was actually part-time so there's that aspect of life so in terms of adapting and um working with students so constantly I hadn't actually done that much prior to to March you know for that year because work just kept being quite busy so when it got to it um, I was also sort of you know getting into it as well as you know learning how to do this online with the students so what we had to adapt to was our method of sort of writing so we we had to do a lot of um, screen sharing a lot of um jotting things down can you see me can you not see me um a lot of showing our um our workings on the camera putting your notebook up close to the camera and it was I think it was fun it was it was to me it was fun and I'm glad I think the students also had some fun just in all the craziness just muddling through you know even when internet connections were bad and going wrong we just carried on and powered through with our learning and I think it was also good because they get set homework and what happens is before they hand it in they they can tell us oh can you please help me with this question I wasn't sure about oh I so wished I'd had you to work (laughs) (laughs) so so there you are, Tiwi. You're doing, as, as far as I can understand, you know, 30-hour days doing all of this. And, of course, let's not forget that you were doing a job and your uh, MSc as well at the same time. How did you cope with the stress? Um, <laughs> um, how did I do it? It's a very good question. I wish I knew. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think to be quite honest with you, I just took everything one step at a time. And I just tried to, you know, I think it was a very fight or flight moment for me. And there was just no other option. I had been working for two years to complete this master's degree. And there was just I just did not want to extend it. I didn't want to come out of it. I had some work issues as well at that time. And I just I just could not do it. Um, and with STEM and with the engineering outreach program, I think at, at some stage, everyone was trying to be helpful. You know, it, 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 there was a point where you felt helpless. You know, you couldn't, what could I contribute? What could I do? And to me, this was my opportunity to to help in some way, especially we were working with the children of key workers, we're working with children who otherwise wouldn't have access to any educational support at such a strange time. And that was my motivation. And that was why of all the things that I could have taken off my plate, this wasn't an option for me. I just wanted to do it and I wanted to carry on. And yeah, and and I'm glad I did. Really glad I did. So uh, uh, people will never forgive me if I don't ask you this question, <laughs> but what's next for Tiwa? Oh, what's next for Tiwa? So <laughs> it's a great question. Um, so I completed my master's in September. Hooray! Um, <laughs> yay! Um, in engineering and international development. And what's next for me now is to find a role. So I was also um, made redundant, actually, during the pandemic. So to find a role 
in international development um, where I can carry on working as an engineer, you know, in sort of less less privileged countries, um, working on projects that build the economy in, you know, just more developing economies, I guess, around the world. And yeah, so my, that's my next step. And in many ways, continue in some capacity to be a STEM ambassador and to, to keep working with young people and inspiring them, especially young women, to just carry on doing what they love and not, not to be scared of it as well. Well, Tiwa, I think I'm I'm pretty confident in saying that I you will be in full employment very, very soon. <laughs> So I I always try and end these programmes because we live in such strange times and it all seems such a dark and horrible tunnel that we're in. But I offer people a a, a magic wand and I ask them if there's one thing that having been uh, up close and uh, personal in this time of pandemic... And I want to concentrate on the education system. What is it that having discovered what you've discovered during lockdown, what if you could wave your magic wand, would you change? And money is no object, by the way. So let's start with Louise. Oh, I, I like that money is no object. Obviously, I, I would um, want full, proper funding for the education system that gives teachers time time to reflect I and mean, we have the resources have the from the physical resources to having the time to engage with these issues reflect and teach in a way that is meaningful to support young people i think we can't underestimate the the pressures teachers are under what schools are being forced to do uh, you know we expect so much of schools and i think they need that the money and the time and the resource and the respect to be able to do it properly and I, if there was one thing that I think that happened during pandemic and, and the lockdown is that parents had a whole new respect for teachers, <laughs> as in, how could you do this <laughs> every yeah. day, all day, uh, as they battled with their children to try and homeschool? Alpida, what about you? I would totally agree with uh, Louise. Absolutely. Support the teachers, support the schools, fund them properly listen to the teachers, they really do know best. They have gone through this entire pandemic and they know what needs to be done. And the thing is, what we we, we sometimes fail to remember is that they have their own childcare uh, through this pandemic. They had their own childcare to deal with. They had content they needed to develop for the pupils that were at home, so online content, but also resources and content for the young people, the children, key workers that were coming into school. And they've been able to do all of it. I really don't know how. I know that we appreciate all of them and we should appreciate them more and more. Tiwa, you've got a magic wand now. Apart from (laughs) we are going to do a collective magic wand and make sure you've got a new job. But but apart from apart from that, from your experience of the of the kids that you helped, what would you do? Honestly, um, mine's pretty easy. I would I would I would give every child a tutor. Um, I think that the work that the engineering outreach program has done and, you know, we have stats that we received recently um, just about the students' performances, even during the pandemic, that's just been so uplifting and just so, so great to see how improved the students are, how much, you know, the pandemic did not 
have negative impacts or the expected um, amount or extent of negative impacts that were that that they thought it would have. So absolutely, we'll get get every student a tutor, um, <laughs> and and have, have we'll clone you. That, I'll clone you with my magic wand. Is, that's your wish. <laughs> 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 Very good. So, uh, uh, first of all, if you are teachers listening, feel the love beaming your way. Um, and, uh, and if you're one of those engineering uh, tutors uh, from UCL Engineering, also feel the love because it's clear that you're very much appreciated by the people that you've been working with. So I'm going to thank you all now and uh, say goodbye. You've been listening to Coronavirus, The Whole Story. This episode was presented by myself, Vivian Parry, produced by UCL with support from the UCL Health of the Public and UCL Grand Challenges, and edited by the splendid Keris Bradley. Our guests today were Professor Louise Archer, Dr Elpida Macrigiani, and Tiwa Jaiola. If you'd like to hear more of these podcasts from UCL Minds, subscribe wherever you download your podcasts or visit UCL ac.uk forward slash coronavirus. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights and expertise through events, digital content and activities open to everyone. Hope to be with you again soon. Bye for now.